Today we have one of our most exciting shows to date with a guest that I've been looking forward to talking to since I first heard her podcast. Of course, I'm talking about Alexandra Ackerman, who hosts a show called Syracuse Speaks. All I can say is if you're a fan of AHL hockey in central New York or the Finger Lakes, you know exactly who she is. You've heard Alex on sports radio. She's written for SB Nation, Raw Charge, and launched the podcast in 2019 as a way to diversify the way she covers the Syracuse Crunch or a Tampa Bay Lightning affiliate. Of course, the theme of today's show is sports, but we go way beyond that. And I know some of you may not be into hockey, but I promise this conversation is worth a listen. Speaking of listening, I am incredibly excited to welcome Alex's podcast to our network. Beginning immediately, you will be able to find the Syracuse Speaks podcast on fingerlakes1.com as well as all of the places it has been published to date. We've dropped some links in the show notes and also in a post on fingerlakes1.com. Anyway, as most of you know, I'm Josh Durso for fingerlakes1.com and enjoy this week's Sunday conversation. It's a good one. was a game pretty early into my years as a fan. I started going to the games in 2004. So it's a little bit ago, (laughs) but there was a game and I don't think I was a season ticket holder then because I remember I was sitting up in the second level and that's not ever where my season tickets have been. So it was tie game heading looked like it was going into overtime and Greg Malden, who I think is retired now. I've been a fan for so long that players have started to retire. He scored with like three seconds left in regulation to save the game and prevent it from going from to overtime. And it was such an incredible rush to have something like that happen so close to a tie game, having to go to kind of like sudden, sudden death overtime. And it was just, it was really neat. So I think that that was probably my earliest, most vivid memory that I have that kind of lives rent free in my head, as they say. Um, How? Did, can't, yeah, that's go how ahead. Did that shape what came after that was that the is that the one that you think kind of hooked you? I think so. You know, I was. It only took about three games during the 0405 season to really kind of be like, okay, so this is going to be you know something pretty big for the foreseeable future. Mm-hmm. So I became a season ticket holder in 0607, and then the following season 0708 was a pretty big one for Crunch fans. It was a uh, a pretty media year until about March. And then the team won 15 games in a row, blasted into the playoffs. So that season is probably the season that really cemented me as like, okay, this is, this is where I need to be. But that memory of Malden's goal, that that's, that's still pretty vivid in my head, even after all these years later. How do you describe, especially to folks who maybe don't follow um, hockey or AHL uh, or even the NHL for that matter, uh, very closely, how do you describe the, the, the way in which people uh, really do sort of, uh, I don't want to call it like fan around these smaller city clubs. Um, but how would you describe that to an outsider who maybe doesn't understand it in the way that obviously you do being a, a decade plus long fan? Being an AHL fan is unique because of the way that the league is. You know, the league is a feeder league. So your team roster is kind of at the mercy of your NHL club. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it it can try your patience sometime. But I also think that because you're in 
these unique situations where your team is shaped by future NHL stars. It's shaped by AHL veterans who are trying to prolong their ability to play for a couple more years. It's, It's such a passion project to be a fan of these teams. And I think that, you know, the smaller cities with these uh, minor league teams, you really get to know the players, even though the players generally aren't with your team for very long, usually even for veterans. Now it's like two years is kind of the maximum for most of them. The team does a lot in the community. And so you really feel like you get to know the players. They go out to different appearances. If you're a season ticket holder, you get to interact with the players pretty much constantly. There's all kinds of things usually going on for season ticket holders. So there's a lot more access to these guys than you get in the big cities with the bigger clubs. The you know I, I've gone to NHL games where the players' cars are in special parking lots behind gates with security guards, and maybe as they're leaving, you might have a chance to throw a jersey at one of their cars, and they'll stop for you. Yeah. Where in the American Hockey League and a lot of these arenas, you share a parking lot with the players. You park next to their cars, so it's really easy to interact with these guys and really kind of feel like you're kind of a part of the family of the team versus being on the outside looking in. You mentioned the feeder aspect. Um, I'm curious because it seems like from time to time, I've heard it up here in in Rochester a bit. A lot of shuffling happens even in the middle of the season. Players coming, going, et cetera, et cetera. Does that actually make it a little more interesting to cover a team like that? Obviously you do it, you're doing it professionally now, but does that make it a little more interesting, if not maybe a little more irritating for for the fan in you too? I was going to say interesting is, is is a fun way to, to put it. Uh, it <laughs> certainly does. It certainly does make it interesting. Yeah. You know, it does create storylines as, as someone who covers the team, it gives you something to talk about almost all the time because you do have a lot of players coming and going between Syracuse and the lightning and then in Rochester between Rochester and Buffalo. And then you have the ECHL aspect too, where you have players coming up from that league to the AHL teams. So you have multiple storylines that you can cover and multiple players that you're kind of tracking and it to see them have that success. But yeah, as a fan, it can also be incredibly frustrating and how the parent club kind of handles those interactions and those transactions and whether the players are actually getting playing time or whether it just seems like they're up there as AHL fans like to say, eating popcorn in the press box can kind of make or break your relationship with that team. And I know that Syracuse has seen that a couple of times, you know, Columbus, who they were affiliated with when I first started watching the team, there were some interesting situations with players getting called up just because they felt like they deserved it. And that didn't make crunch fans very happy, understandably. So, you know, Anaheim was tough because they were so far away. So trying to get players called up to the docks during those two years of that affiliation was a nightmare, you know, and and the lightning really seems to strike a pretty nice balance. So, you know, there's a lot that rides on that relationship which which definitely adds another dimension to everything. How is is as you've over the years covered and been a fan of the team, what is it like sort of experiencing the uncertainty connected to that affiliation and how that can sometimes shift every, you know, couple 3 4 years sometimes? It's you know, you like to think that the grass is always greener and in some cases it is and yeah. in some cases it isn't. You know, in Syracuse it's kind of an interesting situation
situation because Syracuse is independently owned. The Tampa Bay Lightning do not own the crunch, but that's kind of becoming a rarity in the league. There's this movement towards NHL teams snapping up their AHL affiliates kind of so that they can cut out that middleman and sort of be able to do whatever they want with them, which is kind of why I'm an advocate of having an independent owner, because I feel like there needs to be somebody who's going to protect the team's best interests and who's going to say, hey, we've lost our last six games in a row. What are you doing for us lately to help us solve this? versus and then you know having the NHL team just kind of say yeah whatever so you know and that doesn't happen all the time you know and I and I know that but I feel a little bit more secure as a fan having that independent owner because they're the ones that make the decision okay this parent club is not working out for us we need to move on as an organization and that's what happened when Syracuse moved from Columbus to Anaheim and at the time as a fan we were thrilled because the situation with Columbus had really soured so Mm -hmm. like this was going to be great and then Anaheim came in and things weren't so great. The coaching staff was not up to par. There was a lot of drama there and Anaheim was very much like you are not crunch players, you're Anaheim Ducks players and you will wear Anaheim gear and you will carry Anaheim bags and you will not really rep the crunch at all, hmm. which for that small minor league city, that doesn't work. No. You know, you you need that relationship to your community in order to survive as a minor league club. So that lasted 2 years and everybody was really, really happy to see Anaheim go. And that was supposed to be like the savior from Columbus. So it was a little strange to like have that experience where that change wasn't what we expected. Um, And then of course, Tampa comes in, brings a team that basically just won the Calder Cup the year before, puts them all in Syracuse because it's a lockout year and things kind of took off from there. So it, it definitely can be, you know, the grass isn't always greener on the other side situation for sure. I want to dig into that a little bit because it's interesting. You you make that point and kind of referenced it before with the shuffling of players. But it, what is that most common goal? Is it in more teams than not in the in the AHL um, about being a feeder to that that NHL club, or is it more about winning at the AHL level? I think that is like the big question that really forms that relationship between the two clubs. Because if it's a situation where the relationship is there just to feed the NHL club or in the case of the Columbus years to feed the NHL club players that they could then trade away, which was what was happening during those years more often than not then generally there's not a whole lot that keeps that relationship solid. Mm -hmm. Fans are going to get frustrated because chances are the product on the ice is just going to reflect that kind of almost factory-like precision with which players are brought in, trained, and then shipped back out again. You know, there's there's no dedication to we need to win for this city. We need to win for these fans, you know. And then you have, I think, the really good relationships where there's a balance and the emphasis is on winning at the AHL level develops players for the NHL. And one of the things the Lightning has stressed throughout all of the years that the Crunch has been affiliated with them is that the Calder Cup playoffs are the closest AHL players can get to an NHL level competition without being in the NHL. So their goal is to get their players into the playoffs every season Mm -hmm. because of that and how that winning feeds development. So let's go back a little bit. Uh, Your favorite player 
throughout the entire time you've been a fan uh, as a fan. That's part one. And then part two is going to be your favorite player to cover as someone who has been covering the crunch for a number of years. <sighs> okay. Uh, so my favorite player all time is Carl Gehring. Okay. He was actually my first favorite player back in 2004, 2005. He's, well, well he was, he, he is retired now. He was a goalie. <laughs> uh, Columbus brought him in out of uh, Gehring's college career. He played for the University of North Dakota, won a championship there. Uh, Columbus brought him in. Carl was an interesting player because he was 5'8". So for a goalie, that's a little on the short side. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and honestly, I think he was closer to 5'7". <laughs> when we would take pictures together, I'd be about <laughs> right here in heels. So, and I'm not that tall. Yeah. So, uh, you know, he was kind of an underdog and he ended up playing for Syracuse again in 2007, 2008. And then he ended up coming back and coaching for the Crunch as a goalie coach and a video coach twice. So that's really rare in this league to have a player come back to an AHL city that many times. So uh, I definitely, he's still got a really big place in my heart and he's definitely been my, my favorite throughout the years. Uh, there's been a couple others, but I always go back to him. But as far as covering, that's, that's more difficult because I wasn't covering the team, at least not in this way, when Gehring was a player. Mm -hmm. And I'm having a really hard time in my head choosing between Mike Angelitis and Daniel Walcott. Angelitis was a captain of the team from 2012 until 2016. And he is probably my second favorite player to ever pull on a jersey. And he is just one of those hard on his sleeve, classic AHL veteran, plays by example, leads by example, you know, really cared about the city of Syracuse. But then on the other hand, there's Daniel Walcott, who is still currently with the team. He was actually just given an extension to his contract by the Lightning to like two or three days ago for another two years. And he owns a home in the Syracuse area. So he has absolutely put his money where his mouth is and has not only invested personally in the community, but has literally invested like money into the community. He loves Syracuse and... <sighs> He's a lot of fun because he's a little bit of a, a less traditional hockey player. He grew mm -hmm. up with a football background. He was originally drafted into the Rangers organization and then the Lightning signed him. So he's been fun to kind of watch as he's grown as a professional. He started as a defenseman. He's a forward now. He's had that flexibility that Syracuse has really needed from time to time. And he's another one hard on your sleeve, you know, but he's also ingrained himself into this community. And it's kind of hard at this point in time to imagine Syracuse and the crunch without him. Okay. So now we're really going to go back. Um, when did you, when did it click with you that you weren't just a fan? You were, you were destined to be something more than just your run of the mill. There are a lot of fans. I, I am a fan myself of various professional and, and minor league teams in different sports. Um, I have a lot of friends who are too. And I tell you what, they don't have a podcast. They haven't written for as many publications as you have, and they haven't been doing it for um, what appears to be pretty much a decade plus. Uh, so when when did it click uh, with you personally? And mm -hmm. how far into this journey were we when you started to think to yourself, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to give this a go. I'm going to I'm just going to make it happen. So I started blogging in 2008. And at that point in time, I started on my own personal WordPress site with a good friend of mine. And we had actually met on message boards, which were like a big thing back in the 2000s. It's kind of like Reddit for those of you who weren't alive then or 
were on the internet back then. Uh, no one really does message boards that much anymore unless you need like help with your car. <laughs> <laughs> the internet was a different place 13, 14, 15 years ago. It was a very different place. It absolutely was. And what's super interesting about that is that like sports teams especially didn't really know what to do with us. Right. You know, bloggers were not credential media at that point in time. They mm-hmm. were not considered professionals. This was not something people did as a career. It was still just a a kind of a hobby back then. So it was a completely different place. So we started the blog as a way to get that fan perspective out without having to go through like Syracuse.com's comment section, which there's a reason why they've closed it recently. It, It hasn't changed over the years. It's always been a cesspool. And that was frustrating. And message boards were kind of starting to go away. Mm -hmm. And so the two of us kind of figured like, okay, fans need a place to go. Fans need a place to have the fan perspective of what's going on with this team. So we started that in 2008. And, but I don't think it really became real until I joined SB Nation in 2010-11. And at that point in time, that was really the first time I felt like I was taken, quote unquote, seriously, both by another organization, an outside group of people was like, yes, we want you to write for us. We have seen your stuff come cover your team with us but also kind of take myself seriously too. You know, this was because this has been such a long road and because this was such an unknown thing when I first started, not only finding my own spot in the internet, you know, the great ethernet here, but also finding my place between that area of fan and totally credentialed media. That was also kind of a journey. But I think that that really started to cement itself when I joined like a serious blogging site in during the 2000, um, oh, 2000, I'm sorry, 2011-12 season. Um, that was the last season of the Anaheim affiliation. And then I moved over to SB Nation's Tampa Bay Lightning coverage the following year. And that's when things really started to ramp up because the Raw Charge group was and still is a fantastic group of professionals that taught me so much about walking that line between, okay, a fan can say this, you cannot. Yeah. And that was, that's another learning curve, you know, that to be taken again, quote unquote, serious that I really had to kind of grapple with because there's certain things that are okay and there's certain things that aren't. What was it like for you? Obviously, the internet was changing a lot through that through that period, clearly. Um, but then on top of that, you kind of had the changes in the media landscape happening too at the same, at sort of the same the same pace. Uh, what was it like for you professionally? Were, were, was that still at that point, uh, was it still quote unquote a side hustle or was it something that you were doing essentially full-time at that point or at least investing what felt like full-time energy to it? Yeah, I think, I mean, this has never been like, I have a, a, a job that is my full-time job. You know, I work for a school district, I'm a teacher. So this is... This has always kind of been a side hustle. Uh, it's certainly taken on a little bit more of a, a concrete role in my life in the past couple of years, but you know, this is still not my main thing. So one of the most interesting things that I found was that balancing my own mental health with really trying to work as a fan and as a media person and you know all of that, it's that was my most challenging part. And I think that being getting into it with the team too, and kind of grappling with this idea of me being more than a season ticket holder, but yet not 
quite total media because this isn't my job. And, you know, that was also a road that we all kind of had to take. And, you know, being a fan, you put a lot of energy into being a fan and it often affects how you look at your life. When your team loses the next day, you're bummed, you know, and, and the same thing, if you, something's going rough at your job and then your team is also not having a good season, that can feel really overwhelming sometimes. And when you're covering a team and you're going through all of that, your perspective gets skewed. And so trying to figure out ways to navigate that has been really difficult too. Um, did I answer your question? I'm honestly not sure. <laughs> well, okay. So I'm, I'm glad you took it the direction you did because I, I wanted to kind of get into that whole aspect of, you know, you pointed out very, very pointedly that uh, Syracuse.com did away with their comment section for a very specific reason because it's a dumpster fire. Like a lot of comment sections pretty much everywhere on the internet. Um, and then you, you buckled that right into mental health and the challenges that the people who are quote unquote bylined, uh, you know, on these different websites, the struggles that they have to deal with. And I'm curious as you work through that, and I'm assuming you're still, if you're (laughs) as if you've stopped, you're still experiencing that I'm sure on a day-to-day basis and dealing with that on a day-to-day basis. What are some of the things that you've done to sort of um, keep things in check? Do you not read the comments? Do you not look at the feedback? Is it some combination of other things? What are, what are some of the behaviors, the good behaviors um, that you feel like have really helped you uh, manage all of the different things that come your way in what you're doing? Uh, Not reading the comments was big. One of the things that when I used to comment fairly regularly on Syracuse.com, I was trying to be that positive, you know, hey, even though the team is losing right now, everything is, you know, this still isn't as bad as it seems. I would say I, I would throw a rock as I used to put it, and then I would never go back. So I would make my, I would say my piece and then I would never again look. So that was kind of a habit that I picked up. But as I've started to write more in the public sphere, I think that it's more important to cultivate really good people around me. So like my personal Twitter is very much a safe space for me. And I do have a lot of hockey fans that follow me over there. But if somebody finds me that decides to not be a positive place in that space, I have no problem blocking them. If they're going to insinuate anything about me as a female watching the game for a specific reason, or if they're going to be negative about anything else, I have no problem just saying, okay, goodbye. You know, that's my own personal Twitter. I I keep that very much this a a positive place. And I think that that's been really important. I also think that keeping things fresh for me has been um, a, a big step towards helping with the burnout. You know, one of the things I burned out um, completely, like I was just like, I'm done. I can't do this anymore with raw charge about halfway through. And what they did was, okay, we'll back you off the writing, but come be an associate editor instead. So I still got to kind of keep my fingers in it. And I was sort of in charge of other writers who were covering the minor leagues, but it was a way to like back away a little bit, but still keep it there. My voice was still out there. It was just in a little bit of a different way. And then around 2019, you know, um, my dad passed away. That was a really tough time. I was kind of getting to that point where I was just like, okay, I need to, you know, of course we had no idea what was coming in 2020, 2019, but 
so that year was actually when I started my podcast and that really helped because again, it was a fresh new way for me to be able to keep talking about the team that I loved for me to be able to keep covering it, but do it in a way that felt different and that felt new and that was kind of exciting. So that's the advice I've actually given a couple people recently is to find a new way to do it. Because I think that when we fall into those routines and the repetition, and then you start dreading the repetition, that's when things start going bad. So finding that new routine with podcasting really kind of helped me to keep and maintain a fresher perspective. And from my perspective, it's interesting because um, I think there's also a part of like readers, not, not always readers, but listeners, viewers, whatever they are, they're also kind of always craving new and creative things from, from the people who are producing these things. And it's interesting because it seems like to me, when I look at other media, particularly traditional media, it's one of the trappings where like they just get so stuck in a routine and they're just so mm-hmm. set on producing X, Y, and Z things on this set schedule. And all of a sudden they're not the force that they once were. And it's just, it's interesting that you, there's, there's all these different reasons that you can do it. And that urgency to stay creative and to keep changing is probably like the most important thing, period. Um, you mentioned the podcast launched in 2019. What was the sort of ideation period on that? Were you thinking about it like a matter of weeks, months, years before you actually uh, pulled the trigger and said, yes, I'm going to do this, this I'm all in? It, probably months. I what's, what's kind of interesting about it is that it actually came around because um, TST BOCES was offering this fresh idea on professional development where teachers would get to go in and develop a passion project for themselves that they could then hopefully twist into a way to use in the classroom. So knowing that for a couple of months, I had kind of been thinking about developing a podcast, but knowing that I had no idea how to do it, this opportunity came along. And so I started going down there and they began to to really kind of help me along my way to figuring out how to podcast. And I still haven't quite figured out how to turn it around and get it into my classroom. But of course, my classroom has looked a little bit different over the past year or so. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, I'm kind of going to push that off to the side <laughs> right now. But um, but yeah, so that was year. sort of, there's always next year. Exactly. <laughs> so that was kind of the catalyst for it all was that opportunity to really be able to sit down and with people who had podcasted before, who had suggestions on editing software and, you know, what what to record with and and how those things go. And even having to find copyright-free music, which is something that generally isn't exactly talked about, but you need to do it or else you're going to, you know, have your podcast taken down. So it was those, that nitty gritty stuff that that opportunity really kind of helped me with. And it's come, I think personally, it's come a long way since then, but having that initial jump off point where I was able to come away with an idea of what I was going to do was really, really helpful. I'm curious, obviously the the actual process that you went through there in sort of gathering all the, the background played something to do with it, but what was the model? Was there a model that you sort of uh, molded your, uh, your show after that you thought was, I don't want to call it inspiration, but something that you thought was interesting and would work with what you want to do? Um, not, not exactly. The only podcast I was 
was really listening to at the time was Dear Hank and John, uh, which is a podcast from the Green Brothers, uh, Hank and John Green. John's an author. Hank's also an author, along with a myriad of other things he does. And theirs is more of like their readers send in questions and they answer them. And that's really what the entire podcast is. But there are aspects of it, like they have an intro song that's super recognizable. And they sometimes they do like a cold open if there's something that had happened. And then you need to like, oh, I need to move everything up because I have to fit this thing in. And and so just some of those basics of like, what do you do when you already have the episode set and then something happens that you really need to address? And, you know, having transitions and some kind of a consistent theme song at the beginning and the end so that your kind of listeners know like, okay, this is this podcast. So even though the format itself isn't similar to what I do, I think that the mold, I was able to take some of those ideas and kind of use them to to get mine off the ground. What is your advice to someone who has a passion project that maybe they're thinking about, um, but also has a, a real, real life job? too on top of that, that they're trying to figure out how to squeeze something else in. What's your advice to those people who who have an idea for a side hustle, but maybe aren't sure about how to balance it right? <laughs> uh, and don't say add hours into the day or not sleep or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, right. Like I can't <laughs> wave a magic wand and make the day 30 <laughs> hours long. I, I definitely think listen to yourself because you know, and we don't always listen to ourselves. You know, I also think that and I hate, it sounds really cliche, but organization is key. Um, you know, I have my, my Google calendar is full of, okay, I'm going to record the podcast with so-and-so Monday night at five. I'm going to put it together Tuesday night at six. I'm going to write the article Wednesday night at six 30. Like I really try to keep myself on a fairly consistent schedule so that I know exactly what I have to do and nothing gets forgotten, you know, and sometimes that schedule, if, if my Twitter follow know the other night I literally put five o'clock get outside and go for a walk because you know we need to do those things for ourselves and I think that that gets really difficult and I think too being productive is something that I have always kind of struggled with because I feel like if I'm not doing something I'm not being productive but one of the uh, things from from one of Hank Green's books that actually stuck with me was this idea that you'll always struggle with that unless you realize that your own joy is a part of being productive. And if that passion project project is going to create that joy for you, then it's worth trying to find a way to pencil it in. But you're probably literally going to have to sit down and pencil it in because you don't know how much space you have in your day until you really say, okay, at six o'clock tomorrow night, I'm going to sit down and write that blog post. Or, you know, at 730 tomorrow, I'm going to watch that video on how to have a good Twitter account. Or how to or how to run a TikTok account. I don't know how to do that. I don't really want to know how to do that. <laughs> but maybe you want to be a, maybe you want to become a TikToker. Yeah. Like watch that video on how to do it. You know, look into the different blog hosting sites. Pencil that time in for yourself so that you know you will sit down and get it done. Because that first step is the hardest. You know, when I was struggling with how to what was stopping me with creating my own podcast, I just didn't know how to get started. I didn't know what edit what editing 
software to look into. I knew I didn't want to spend a lot of money, you know, because again, this is not my main job. So to spend hundreds of dollars on all of this stuff just was not going to work for me. So, you know, taking that first step, having that opportunity to learn about this stuff really kind of set me on that path. So, but I had to, I had to make the time. I had to say, okay, I'm going to join this program. I'm going to make time for it in my schedule and I'm going to go do it. So if you have to, if you have to sit down with your calendar and say this weekend, two o'clock X, Y, Z, then that's what you have to do. And that's okay. And it worked by the way, because your podcast is literally one of the best produced pieces of audio programming I have ever listened to in my, my career thus far. I will say that it is insane how good it <laughs> is for someone who is, as you've kind of described it, just winging it. It is really good. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the pandemic part of this. Um, the crunch, how has that, how has this season evolved uh, for them given the pandemic and kind of the topsy-turvy world we've been living in um, clearly since any hockey season began in, in late 2020 or early 2021? It's been an interesting road because back when the AHL paused, which was just a year ago yesterday at this point in time, you know, of course, none of us knew that that was going to be the last game played in 2020. That was not something we were, you know, privy to at the time. So we just figured eh, it's a week or two schedule. will be back on track. Things we find, you yeah, know, so, you know, it really wasn't clear that the AHL was going to come back until I think it was the end of December. And the way that Syracuse owner Howard Dolgan has really talked about this, it was almost like a 24 hour turnaround. And originally the crunch was very, very insistent that without fans, they were not going to be able to play because Syracuse is independently owned. One of the problems is that that revenue stream that an NHL team could provide its own farm club is not available. So a lot of the teams that were looking to play for a 2021 season were the teams that were owned by their NHL club because they could afford to put their players on the ice without worrying about fans. Yeah. The independently owned clubs could so right around, I think it was about the middle of December, all of a sudden Howard, Howard's tune changed a little bit. And we don't have any numbers. We don't have anything that's solid, but it's pretty much known that the Tampa Bay Lightning said, we will help you ah. if you can get your players onto the ice. So first that shift was made from, you know, we need to have fans to, well, maybe we don't need to have fans. <laughs> and then towards the end of December, we really started to see the ball rolling a little bit more, but there was still a long way to go between when the team started to talk to one another and when it was actually approved. And I mean, unfortunately, along the way, we lost three AHL clubs because Milwaukee, Charlotte, and there's one more, and I can't remember who it is off the top of my head, but they decided they can't play. It's not safe for our staff. We don't know how we can handle this. So, you know, that was kind of the first domino to fall in all of this was that the league was coming back for a 2021 season, but it was going to be without those three clubs. So the league said, okay, you know, we're, we're going to come back. Syracuse said, okay, we can play without fans. And so that kind of got going. The other side of this was that the Crunch's front office was basically reduced to two people at one point in time. Um, it was pretty much just like Jim Sorosi and like one other person. And, and Sorosi is the chief operating officer of the team. And they had to furlough a lot of people. They've lost a lot of people. There's people that got other jobs and that aren't coming back. So that piece too, as Syracuse was looking to like put another season all of a sudden on the ice, they were like, well, we don't have staff, so we have to get staff back.
back. So that's been kind of a process for them building it up too. And one of the wrinkles in the AHL season is the NHL taxi squads, which are players from the AHL who are with the NHL club so that in case the NHL needs a call up, they don't have to quarantine or worry about COVID protocols. Uh, That's eaten away at AHL rosters a ton because they have six players right off the top that aren't with them. mm -hmm. So that situation ended up going into a dual affiliation with the Lightning and the Florida Panthers, whose whose farm team, Charlotte, isn't playing this season. So now Syracuse has Tampa Bay Lightning players and it has Florida Panthers players on their roster, which... Again, it's one of those storylines that as a media person, it's been very interesting to follow. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So that's kind of how it kind of came along. What, from your perspective right now, what's the health of the league moving forward? Uh, As far as like going into next season? Yeah. Like what's the, on the sustainability side of this thing, like is there going to be, obviously uh, the professional clubs have have dumped some money at this point into their their affiliates. Um, Is there going to be sort of uh, uh, coming around uh, on this down the line where there may be some loftier expectations about how these clubs make money down the road or the kind of money they do or don't make down the road? I think that I, I do think that things will rebound. I'm not sure when, mm-hmm. you know, I actually had Sorosi on my podcast uh, about two or three weeks ago now. And he mentioned that like, really what we're going to be looking at is like a three season, you know, disruption on all of this, because you have this season that's just kind of a null season. And then you have next season where we're not exactly sure what's going to happen. You know, hopefully the league has set an opening night weekend date for October. I mean, their their intentions are there. And I don't think that any team, even the ones who like opted out this season, I think they're all going to come back. Yeah. You know, I think that financially they're, they're going to be able to drop the puck in October. Um, but then you're going to, so you have kind of the uncertainty of next season. And then finally the season after that, hopefully things will be entirely back to normal. But I do think it's going to be a struggle. You know, Syracuse lost season ticket holder revenue for this season entirely. Um, everybody who had paid their season tickets, it got rolled over to next season. And who knows? I mean, I'm, a, I'm hopeful that all of the season ticket holders can return, but people's economic situations are very different right now in a lot of ways than they were a year ago. So, you know, hopefully there won't be too much collateral damage there. The other thing that I think is going to be affecting a lot of AHL clubs is the sponsorship situation mm. because small businesses are the backbone of a HL clubs and their sponsorships. They, you know, it's the local pizzeria joint down the street. It's Alan Angus across the road from the war Memorial. It's, you know, the local union. It's, it's not in a lot of ways, the big corporations that the NHL, you know, Budweiser doesn't have a, an, a board ad in the Onondaga County war Memorial, you know, who does is the local small businesses, you know? So I do think that that's going to be a challenge. And I know that, that Sorosi and, and the group is a aware of that challenge. And it's going to be, you know, kind of a rough go to see how that all works out and where that the sponsorship money ends up coming from. It's going to be a hustle to find new sponsors and, and hopefully new businesses have come out of this too that they can tap into, but there are going to be challenges. Is there, uh, thinking like just in terms of potential sort of upside to what, what's happened over the last year, year and a half, obviously people haven't been to a, a game probably in, in a year plus. Um, is there 
the idea that obviously going to a Syracuse Crunch game is probably significantly less expensive than, say, going to see uh, Philadelphia or Buffalo play or any of the New York teams. Um, Is there potential, given that people are now a little more accustomed to not wanting to travel quite as far away, that maybe these sort of, you know, going to, you know, a half dozen or so uh, home games in Syracuse maybe becomes a little more palatable and becomes something that these teams can maybe rely on a little more regularly than before the pandemic? I hope so. I think that, you know, one of the things that that hopefully this has taught us is that entertainment close to home can be found. You know, we can find ways in smaller areas, in more intimate settings. And, And the Onondaga County War Memorial sure counts as intimate. Um, it's, it's a small little barn, but we love it. (laughs) So, you know, I do think that if people, especially people who haven't been able to do things with their family, as you said, it is less expensive to go to a minor league hockey game than it is to go to a, you know, an NHL game in a bigger city, or even sometimes to, to an SU game, depending on where you want to sit, you know, in, in the dome and those kinds of things. So if people are looking for, for more things that they can do as a family and a fun way to spend an evening when for so long we've just had to kind of stay inside and stare at each other while we all watch Netflix or whatever. Um, I do think there's opportunity there for sure. And I think that it's going to really, you know, necessitate just advertising and awareness. And, you know, the the crunch has always been really good. And and I know the Amherst have too at doing, you know, special community nights and theme jerseys and giveaways and things that really get people through the doors. And I think that that kind of stuff is going to be more important than ever because anything that you can do to kind of sweeten the pot a little bit, get some more publicity, get some different publicity to get people to come out, I think is really going to be essential to these teams with getting people through the doors. Exciting stuff. And your podcast is where everyone's going to be finding out what's going on with the crunch. Uh, Alex, thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And, and thank you again for the kind words that you said about my podcast. That was amazing. Thank you. Thank you.